Well, good morning. It is a pleasure to be with you all uh, this morning. It's not my first time here, believe it or not. I uh, had the chance, my wife and my son came here a few months ago as guests. And I've got to tell you, it was a church that we wanted to be in. It was a church that felt alive. It was a church where the Spirit of God was moving, where people were worshiping the Lord, where uh, you could feel his presence. And um, uh, I've got big shoes to fill today because I, I, I listened to Nick preach for the first time, and I was like, man, that, that guy's a good preacher. Uh, you guys have a really, really good pastor. I've, I've known Nick and, and Jake for a long time. Um, I've had the privilege of walking with Nick uh, more than Jake, but uh, I love that man. He is a dear friend of mine. Um, he's poured into my life. Hopefully I've been able to pour into his life. Um, and just together we've uh, been able to walk with Jesus and encourage one another. And it's just a, a real privilege to be with you all this morning. Um, I, I wanted to pray as we get into God's word. Um, there was a, a line in the worship song, and I, I wrote it down in the middle because I, I didn't want to forget exactly how it said it was. We are standing in your glory. I just, before we open up God's word, let's just... Let's just pause for a second and recognize where we are. It's not about a sermon. It's not about me teaching anything. This is about being in the presence of the very God. The one who made you. The one who loves you. The one who longs to be in relationship with us. And we are standing in his glory. Uh, Let me me pray for us. God, we just uh, thank you for your presence in our lives. And we are humbled that you would invite us to be in relationship with you. That you would pursue us. That you would love us. That you'd want to be with us. And we just pause to recognize that we are standing in your glory. The great I am, our Savior, our King, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, our comforter, our wisdom, our friend, our ever-present help in times of trouble, and the one who knows us the best and yet loves us the most. Would you speak to us this morning? Would you come with power? We don't come to hear a message. We come to commune with you. And we ask that your spirit will be moving in this room, connecting with every one of our hearts, giving us a greater vision of you, and helping us to see all that you are. Would you transform us as we look to the one in whose image we've been made in? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, um, just check to make sure that was working. So, as Jake said, we're going to talk about shame today. Um, and with that, I was going to say it this way. We're going to talk about something that I think every single person in some way, in some capacity is carrying this morning. In some way, it's almost inescapable for us to not walk in the doors this morning carrying an aspect of shame. 
Shame is a close companion, but it doesn't have to be. It's hounded us, it's after us, and it it defines many aspects of our lives. And and while I want to talk about shame a little bit, I don't really want to talk about shame, I want to talk about Jesus, because the reality is you and I don't have to live in shame, though we all deal with it. And though I'm going to start talking about shame for a second, I'm going, to, I'm going to share with you some of the effects of shame, some of the ways that we carry it, some of the ways that it affects us and impacts our lives. Um, by the end, I hope that what we're really discovering is who we are in Jesus and how that shame has no voice in our lives any longer. And so may the Lord come with power to silence the voice of shame in your life and in my life. May the Lord come with power to deliver us from any aspect where shame has spoken in and and brought something to our hearts and lives and may us believe something that's not true. And and may the Lord move this morning to take shame off in such a way that it can no longer be a close companion. It is a distant memory. Now, I I know that I probably can't do all that this morning, but the Lord can. And um, I'm taking a six-hour conference and condensing it into uh, one message. If you want to know more about shame, I'll tell you this. Come meet me out there. Um, I've got a shame course that we're releasing in a week or two. So if I don't hit something for you, chances are um, I've probably got it somewhere else in, in, in this course we're releasing. So if you want that, we're offering a, a 50% discount to you all if you'd, if you'd like that. Um, so with that said, let's talk about shame for a second. Shame is an identity issue. It's what it is. And so we often think about shame, but we don't really tie it into the fact that it really is an identity issue. And to break free from shame in all its forms, we have to know who we are. If you don't know who you are, then shame will tell you who you are. If you don't know who you are, and if you're not letting the Lord tell you who you are, shame will tell you, and it wants to tell you who you are. And shame is after me and you to uh, convince us that we are something less than who God says we are. And if we believe we are something less than who God says we are, we will walk under the impact and influence of shame. Uh, Shame walks around in the form of an inner critic who tears us down every chance it gets. So some of us don't need someone else to tell us how bad we are. We'll do it ourselves. And shame is an inner critic. If you've got an inner tape in your head that's always telling you, I'm the worst parent ever, I'm the worst husband, the worst wife, or I'm not good at this, or I'm not good at that, I'm not a good employee, or I'm not this, I'm not that, all those statements, that inner critic, it's shame. It's something telling you you are less than who God says you are. It's an identity issue. Shame comes out as the form of another person judging us and pointing out our perceived faults and failures. Every time someone says, you are, you're this or you're that. I actually don't want to kind of lift, list a whole bunch of things. I don't put things on you. But you know what they are. Like when that someone else is pointing the finger at you and saying, hey, you're always this or, or you're always that. You're an angry person. You're, you're this. You're that. That's shame. It's when someone's pointing the finger at you and, and judging you over it. And those things tend to stick. Uh, shame comes in uh, comparison and believing that someone else is better than us, more beautiful, smarter, or more popular. Okay, if you are not dealing with this, then you're not on social media. If you are dealing with this, get off of social media. I'll tell you, I do tons and tons and tons of counseling. And almost always, it relates back to social media. 
because we've become a culture that compares ourselves with someone else. And we always think someone has got it better, got it easier, it's, it's, it's better than, than me, or, and all that, all that comparison game. And so shame is running throughout the whole country because the whole country is on social media. Now, you don't need social media to have that problem. I mean, you get off social media and shame's still going to run. It just runs on um, hyper power through social media. You can be in your neighborhood and look down and go, that guy's got a better car. They got a better house. They got this. They got that. We don't need social media to do it. Shame will do it. But you put yourself on social media, and it is going to just take that and just ramp it up. Uh, shame is an identity issue. It comes from not living up to expectations. You have expectations. You have expectations of yourself. People have expectations of you. Dare I say, if you're married, your spouse has expectations of you. Your children have expectations of you. Your boss has expectations of you. Your brothers or sisters have expectations of you. Your parents have expectations of you. Everyone around us has expectations of us. I've got expectations of myself. Dare I say, you do too. And what happens is this. Shame comes from not living up to expectations. When I don't live up to an expectation... Well, then shame will come on because I, I, didn't, I didn't reach this. And gosh, people will tell you when you don't. And uh, you know what? I also have perceived expectations that God has of me. And what happens when I don't meet them? And when I don't meet the expectations of myself or someone else or God, then I live under the weight of that shame. And uh, that same song, You're Standing in Your Glory, um, there was this line we sang, You've come to bear shame. You've come to bear shame. I, thank you for the worship. I mean, I, I'm just sitting here going, like, uh, Lord, Lord's here, and he says, I, I want to bear your shame. When we are under shame, we're under the weight and the burden of expectations. It's so hard to carry that. You know, Jesus said, come unto me, all you are weary and heavy burdened, and I'll give you rest. You can't live in rest when you're under shame. You're under a burden, and God wants to take it off. Because he wants to bear the shame and have us no longer bear it. That's what he wants to do. Uh, shame is an identity issue. It creates performance because we believe we are what we do. Welcome to Northern Virginia. We are what we do. They're type A. And what happens is when we live that way, then there's the, the, the weight of shame on that because it makes us a performer. Because if I have an expectation, well, I have to meet that expectation. Now, here's, here's how you see that played out. If you meet an expectation... Will anybody thank you for it? Well, no, because you just did what you're supposed to do. The only time they'll thank you is when you exceed expectations. So the reality is that most people in life only experience praise, encouragement, or gratefulness when you exceed expectations. Now, you know what also happens when you don't meet expectations? Oh, well, they'll tell you about it. Oh, they'll be very vocal here. And, and very often, people are more vocal about how you don't meet an expectation then they are vocal about how you exceeded an expectation. And then no one talks about it when you actually meet an expectation. If you meet an expectation, you know what that means? You actually live the way you're supposed to. And shouldn't that be praiseworthy? Shouldn't that be praiseworthy that you were living the way God made you? That you actually fulfilled who God is in and through you in that moment of your life, and that should be praised where they're going, wow, look who God made you to be. Because it's not about your glory, it's about his glory. And to meet expectations is actually to really be the person that God created you to be and who the Holy Spirit is in and through you, and that is praiseworthy, his praise. Look what God did when God made Jake. It's amazing. 
I don't know your all's names, but I could do the same thing. I hope one day to know some of your names, if not all. But the reality is what creates performance. Now, you know what? It's a double-edged sword. you know why? Because it is a double-edged sword because we often don't do what we think we should. So you're going to be a performer, and when you don't do what you think you should, no, now you're going to get crushed. Because now I, I've got my own inner critic again. Well, I didn't live up to who I thought I could be, should be. Brennan Manning said this. Forgive me for the pejorative aspect of this, but it, it just it sticks with you. Uh, Brennan Manning said, um, stop shooting on yourself. It's a powerful phrase. Stop shooting on yourself. Because the reality is so many of us do that. And then we feel slimed by it, under the weight of it. And it just comes around us. Shame says you're inferior, you're missing something, and you're the sum of your past mistakes. Uh, shame doesn't tell you who you are any longer. I, I want that to be the end of, of this. I don't want it to tell you any longer because we're going to talk about who you are. And we're going to talk about what Jesus does with that. Um, I'll share with you one quick small story about how, sh- how shame impacts you from an identity perspective. I was in um, first grade. In first grade, my first grade teacher told me that I was stupid. That's a powerful word for a first grader. She told me I was stupid to my face. Now, I just want to ask you a quick question. What do you think happened to my grades when my first grade teacher told me I was stupid? Yeah, they, they were in the toilet. My dad moved here when I was eight years old. He had to get me out of the school system we were in. We moved here. Uh, he had an opportunity to move, and he's like, I'm getting out of here because i got to get him out of here. I'm in third grade here. I'm in all the remedial classes, all of them. And, and there's no shame in that, but that's just where I was. However, my third grade teacher, who knew me for all of a week, looked at me, and this is her very words, which is surprising until you think about it. She said, you're not that stupid. I was like, oh, I didn't know that. My last teacher told me I was stupid. You're not that stupid. And so she said, I need to move you. And I'm taking you out of this class. So I'm like, oh, okay. So I pack up my books. I'm third grader, so I think I'm just going to regular class. We go right past the regular class. And she put me in the gifted and talented class. I went from remedial to gifted and talented in five minutes. What do you think happened to my grades? Straight up. Because we often are what we believe. And when someone tells you you are less than who God made you to be, you will live out who someone else is telling you to be. Shame affects all of us. And in our lives, the enemy uses shame Because the enemy wants to tell you you are less than who God says you are. And if you believe what the enemy is telling you, you'll live up to it. If you begin to believe who Jesus says you are and what Jesus has done for you, you'll live up to that. I firmly believe this phrase is a phrase that God put on my heart one day. It says, when you know who he is, you will know who you are. When you know who you are, it will affect the way that you live your life. We'll say it again. When you know who he is, you'll know who you are. Your identity comes from him. When you know who he is, you'll know who you are. When you know who you are, it will affect the way you live. Now, guess what? When it affects the way you live, then the people around you, well, they'll know who you are. And if they know who you are, they'll know who he is. See, evangelism has so much to do with identity. If you know who he is, you'll know who you are. If you know who you are, it will affect the way you live. If it affects the way you live, then the people around you will experience God through you, and they'll know who you are. And when they know who you are, they'll know who he is. Don't let shame 
speak any longer to who you are. So let's start to deal with that. Genesis chapter 1, 26 through 27, some of this I'm going to fly through. Um, but it says this, God said, let us make mankind in our image and our likeness so that they may rule over the fish and the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. Who are you? Who are you? You're an image bearer of God. Do you know that? That's literally who you are. You are made in God's image. People are supposed to look at us and go, well, that's what God looks like. You're an image bearer of God. And, and you are made in his image, and so am I. We're, we're made in his image. Now, I understand there's a sin issue. We'll get to that in a second. But just know this is originally how we're made. Genesis 1.31 says, God saw all that he made. He said it was good. Actually, it doesn't say just good. In fact, the way the creation account goes, he says he created the land, said it was good. Created the animals, said it was good. Created the sea, said it was good. Created the sun, said it was good. Created the stars and all the stuff that we look at. Oh, that's amazing. He said, it's good. You know what he said when he made you? It's very good. Very good. You are not just good. No, no, no. You're very good. And when God looks at all the things that he created, he looks around and says, yeah, we, we look at creation, right? I don't, I don't know if you ever go on hikes or you like to be outside. I love being outside. And I, I love taking in all those things. And I've seen the Grand Canyon. I've seen uh, volcanoes and the splendor of the mountaintops that are snow-capped. And all. I, I've seen a lot of these things. I, I love that stuff. And I'm like, ah, it's amazing. And God, it's good. It's good. Well, I won't lie. It's good. But have you seen that? Man, that is very good. God's bragging on himself. When God brags on himself, he is saying, I made this. That's what I made. Can you believe what I did? No, I mean, I, that's how he made us. That's his intent. And we say this in Psalm 139. It says this, I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. You can actually praise God for the way you're made. But you know, because of shame, most of us don't. Most of us don't praise God the way we're made. We look at all the, the shortfalls and the pitfalls and the things we think we don't measure up in. But the reality is the way God made you, it's, it's for a purpose and for a design. And I don't have this up here, but I think you can imagine. I wasn't planning on this, but I feel like the Lord's telling me to go this way. Um, imagine a Coke can, not a bottle, a can. You know a Coke can, right? You've all seen one. You've all used one. You've opened up a can before, right? You, you know the tab, right? That tab has a hole in the tab. When you, when you pull it up, there's a little hole there on that tab. And some might say it was to save on aluminum. They're just trying to save a buck. They're not. That's not why the hole's there for. The hole has a purpose. The purpose of the hole is to hold a straw in a Coke can. If you ever take a straw and put it in a Coke can, it's going to float out. That's what it does. But the guy who created the tab wanted some way to keep the straw in. So he created it on a swivel with a hole in it. So you put a straw in it, and you go... All right, it'll hold my, it'll hold my straw. You know, and, and so you might look at that and go, why do I have this hole in my life? If you were to look at your own life, to use the Coke can tab as a pejorative, why do I have this hole in my life? Why is this missing? Why is this not here? Why, why is this not present in my life? Why, why don't I have this? You are fearfully and wonderfully made. Intentionally. And there's a purpose for everything that's in your life and not in your life. It's on purpose. For his glory. You know, I don't know if you've ever seen these. These are much less common, but they actually have a tab that has no hole in it. And so if tabs were to compare themselves, like, look at you, you've got a full tab. I don't. I'm missing something. 
Or the other person like, wow, almost all the Coke cans have a hole in the tab, but I, I have the whole thing. Why am I like this? We compare, right? Well, here's the deal. They, they created that tab for a reason. You may not know this, but if you've ever been on a picnic, have you ever had a bee or a yellow jacket get in your Coke? I, maybe you have. I actually know someone who drank a bee that was in their Coke and they got stung. <laughs> Terrible experience. That's why you have a tab with no hole in it. It swivels around and covers up the drinking hole while you are not drinking at a picnic. Everything has a purpose. You are made on purpose with a design. Everything about you is intentional to his glory. Now with that, Jeremiah 1.5 says this, before I formed you in your mother's womb, I knew you. Think about that for a second. We, uh, many of us will know that verse, but I don't know how many of us have meditated on that verse. Meditate on it with me. Before I formed you. Before I formed you in your mother's womb, I knew you, God says. Which means this. You're not an afterthought. You're not happenstance. He actually thought very intentionally about you before he made you. And he said, I knew who you were before I even put you in your mother's womb. And everything about you is my intent and my design, and I have forethought to it. You are not a mistake. You are not an accident. You are not a happenstance. You are not just something that happened. And you're not just something where God spoke and says, hey, let there be people, and then all of a sudden there are people. Like, no, before you were placed in your mother's womb, he knew you. It means he knows everything about you. He knows everything about your life, what you will do, what you won't do, what you like, what you don't like, um, how you're going to respond to different things, and the aspects of your personality. He knew that, and he said, that's good. That is very good. And he puts you in your mother's womb. He did. You and I have to own that. We have to know who we are. Genesis 2.25 says this, because then there's um, part of the creation. says this, Adam and his wife were both naked. And this is how the creation event ends. The story of creation ends with this. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. So think about that. What that really means is this. They were fully transparent and comfortable. That's the way they were. Fully transparent, fully known, and comfortable. Can you imagine going through life and being fully known and comfortable? Can you imagine going through life being fully transparent, the things that you're thinking, the things that you like, the things that you don't like, all the different things, and being able to be comfortable? Because that's how God created us to be. The problem is this, and I think we all know it, there's Genesis 3. And in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve sin. So before they sin, they were naked and they felt no shame. They were transparent and comfortable. And then they sinned. And guess what? They're no longer comfortable. Genesis 3 starts that way. So creation ends, sin enters. Well, what happens when sin invades the image bearer? Because you're the image bearer of God. Now sin invades the image bearer. It doesn't make you less than an image bearer of God. It just means now you have something that's been introduced to the image bearer that's not a part of who God is. Now with that, here's what they do. They cover themselves with fig leaves. That's what they do. Because they are no longer comfortable. They're no longer comfortable with each other, so they cover themselves. They're no longer comfortable with God, so they cover themselves, and then they hide on top of it. And reality is most people in life still live like Adam and Eve. I, I need to cover up. I need to hide things. I need to keep things from other people. I got to do a, 
charade, so to speak, so people don't really know who I am. I can't really be transparent, and I don't think God would really like me if he really um, was dealing with me. And, And the reality is that oftentimes what happens with shame is we have to cover ourselves up, not only with each other, but also with God. Now, how does that play out in an everyday life? Because, I mean, we're, uh, a lot of us here, unless you're exploring Jesus, and I, I hope people in here are exploring Jesus, um, but if you've placed your faith in Jesus, why is it that we still feel uncomfortable with God and each other? Here, here's how we do. When we sin, um, my counseling experience and my own life experience tells me we tend to hide. I, I need to do enough right things long enough before I can actually go back to God. I need to go do some religious activity so I can be okay with God. I've got to have enough time where I've done the right thing and I didn't go down that sin road to feel comfortable again, which is actually putting the onus on me, which is saying I'm going to cover myself. I'm going to hide until I feel like I can actually come out. They cover their shame to make themselves presentable to God and others, and we want to do the same thing. Let me go back to that. God wants to remove our shame. So what happens when I see this with church a lot we, we still live our lives with each other, covering things up, and God does not want to cover your shame. He wants to remove it. He does not want to cover your shame. He wants to remove it. I've got some couches. I got married, and my wife inherited these uh, awful bachelor couches. You know, It didn't take long for them to get covered. There's a slipcover over them. And the slipcover is, is such that it makes the um, couch presentable. We can now show this to other people. Um, as a bachelor, I don't care. And I still didn't really care either when we were married. But she cares. They're covered. But underneath it, we know it's still a mess. You know, in, in church, oftentimes we walk around covered, and we feel like in the inside, it's still just a mess. God does not want to cover your shame. He wants to remove it. We cover it with going to church, doing good things, performing well, following the phrase, do better. I love that phrase. I hate that phrase. Do better. Do better. Oh, my gosh, what a shame phrase that is. And we use it all the time. Oh, I'm going to do better. You need to do better. Hashtag do better. Oh, my goodness. Oh, oh, the performance it creates and all the shame that it carries and all the expectations and the weight of that. And, and then what happens, if I do better, then okay, now I'm all right. Are you? Are you? Because the reality is you are already all right. You are already all right. We're going to talk about more about why, why we are. Righteousness is to be in the right standing with God. That's what it means. Theological word, let's make it simple. It's to be in right standing with God. Do you want to be in right standing with God? Do you want to be able to stand before God? Like we, that, that phrase, we are standing in his glory. If you were standing in his glory, do you feel like you could stand? But we sang, stand in your glory. I don't know if this was the intent behind the lyric or not, but I'm hearing it this way. You and I can stand in his glory. We don't have to cower in it. You and I can stand in his glory. We don't have to uh, shrink back. Because this is the God who loves you, who is holy and is completely other, has invited us into relationship with him, who has paid the entire debt and said, you are in right standing with me. We stand in his glory because he tells us we can Not because we have intrinsically anything of value to bring, but because he himself has said, you are worthy to stand with me. In fact, Jesus says this way, I'm not ashamed to call you my brother or my sister. That's in Hebrews. I'm not ashamed. He is not ashamed of you. In fact, he's he's not ashamed. He says, I'm not ashamed to call you a brother, which means I'm not ashamed to say you are so close to your family. 
Your family. Um, even as I say that, I don't know if you know this. In, in the Gospels, Jesus is doing some, he's doing a healing or a teaching. I, I don't remember exactly, so Google it or look it up, or someone else in here will probably know exactly where it is. But in the Gospels, Jesus is teaching or healing, and outside is his mother and his brothers, and someone says, hey, your mother's here, your brothers are here. Do you know what Jesus says? He says, eh, my mother and brothers and sisters are right here. It's whoever does the will of God. Now, it sounds like he's putting Mary down. It sounds like he's putting James down, and, and maybe James's brother actually took it that way. Uh, there's indication he might have. But Jesus is not putting them down. He's elevating people. He is not putting them down who are outside the room. He's elevating people inside the room. And God wants to elevate you and me to say, you can stand with me, your family. Now, how do you get to be right standing with God? Now, here's the thing that has to be really understood. Righteousness is given, it's not earned. Righteousness is given, it is not earned. You cannot earn it. It is given to you by God. But most believers I encounter will receive Jesus, will receive the cross, will uh, pray the prayer, but the reality is we think that righteousness is still something we earn. If I do the right thing, God will be happy with me. If I, if I have a prolonged aspect of doing the right thing, he'll really like me. And we live in a performance mentality. Righteousness, though, is not earned. You are not righteous because you did the right thing. You are not righteous because you did the right thing for a week. You're not righteous because you did the right thing for a year. You are righteous because Jesus did the right thing. And that is why you're righteous, and it's a gift. Now, i got to prove this to you, and you may already know it, but I'm going to prove it to you from Scripture. Romans 1, 16 to 17. Righteousness is given. It is not earned. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, righteousness from God is revealed. See that righteousness? Is, where is it from? It's from God. It's not yours. The gospel is not a righteousness from you is revealed. It is not say righteousness and the way to be righteous is revealed in the gospel. So that you do the right thing so then you can be declared righteous. It says righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last as is written. The righteous will live by faith. Righteousness, there's two kinds. You can have self-righteousness or you can have the righteousness that comes from God. Which one do you want? See, if you and I have our righteousness, we call self-righteousness, you cannot stand before a holy God. But if you have righteousness that comes from him, you can stand in front of a holy God because you've got the righteousness that he wants. And that's the gospel. It's a righteousness from God. Now that righteousness in chapter 3 of Romans says this, a righteousness from God apart from what? Apart from the law. You don't get this righteousness by living up to a law, to a code, or to expectations. You don't get it that way. That's not God's righteousness. It is a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known to which the prophets testify. It says, to which the law and the prophets testify. The law, which most people try to live under, is testifying there's a righteousness that doesn't come from you. It comes from God. Do you want that one? All the law will tell you is you don't live up to God's standard. That's all it will do, with one exception. It's a pointer. So here's how most of us believe the law. It points at me and says, I'm terrible. And it does do that, but it points another direction. And it says, because of that, look at him who will make you righteous. Stop looking at yourself and start looking at him. It's a righteousness that is apart from the law. This righteousness 
verse 22, is from God, comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all believe. There's no difference for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Okay, another theological word, justification. Let's make it really simple. You're going you're gonna to get a theological word today if you don't know it already. It's going to be very, very, very simple. Justification means this. God looks at me and you just if I'd never sinned. I'm justified. If I am justified by the gospel, God looks at me just if I'd never sinned. Because that's the gift of righteousness that God gives to us. I'm justified. Now, it's a gift for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God's eternal life, it's a gift. You got to open it. It's freely offered. You can have it. But righteousness isn't something you earn and say, God, did I do good enough? Righteousness isn't earned so you don't compare yourself and say, gosh, I got to get up to uh, Jake or, or Nick or the person sitting next to me or one of the elders or, or um, the, the mom over there who really has it all together and her children are amazing and that's like the godliest woman you've ever seen. No, I mean, the reality is this. It's a gift and, and we're all righteous, which means this, we're all the same. If you've placed your faith in Jesus, guess what? You're righteous and so am I. You could stand up here just as much as I could. There's nothing about me that's any different. We have the same Holy Spirit. We have the same God. We have the same gospel. We have the same good news. I am righteous, and I'm not afraid to say it because of what he did, not because of what I did. It is earned. No, it's not. It's given. God doesn't want to cover our sin in a sense to earn righteousness. He wants to remove our sin if we'll let him, and he wants to give us righteousness. Psalm 103.12 says this, As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. You know what? You are not your sin. Shame will tell you your, your sin. 12-step programs tell you you are a sin. You show up in a 12-step program, and I am not disparaging them in any way. They're wonderful. There is so much good out of them. I'm not disparaging them in any way. However, you show up and say, my name is Rick, and I'm an alcoholic. Are you hearing any problem with that phrase based on this? We will show up somewhere. We will identify as our sin. And if you've ever been in a place like that, um, and you've ever stood up and said, my name is Rick, and I am an alcoholic, no, I'm, I'm not. I'm just using this as an example, just in case anybody's wondering. Um, and if I was, God's grace. It doesn't really matter. Thank God. I'm righteous, regardless. Um, but if I said, I'm, I'm Rick and I'm an alcoholic, which one has weight? My name is inconsequential. You won't even remember it. Alcoholic, you'll remember. We identify as our sin. That's what we do. Uh, but it says this, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Transgression is a fancy word for sin. So guess what? Where is sin? It's not here. It's as far as the east is from the west. I don't have a compass, but you know what I'm saying. It can't get any further away. It's as far as the east is from the west. And I don't know the last time you looked west, but west never, never seems to end. I don't know if you looked east, but it never seems to end because that's how far away it is. It's never getting anywhere close to you. It continues to go that way. It is not on you. Stop identifying yourself with your sin. Because it's not even here. He removed it. He removed it. Hebrews 8, 12 through 13 says, For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. This is God talking. 
God says, I'll remember their sins no more. And as it goes on, it says, by calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. This is found in Hebrews, but the reality is it's a quote from the Old Testament. God has said it at least twice that he will remember your sins no more. He doesn't remember them. Okay, now it says in verse 13, by calling this covenant new, why does he not remember them? Because of the new covenant, that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and for my sins, conquering sin, then rose from the grave, conquering the consequence of sin, which is death, is now seated in the heavenly realms next to the Father in kingship over all. That new covenant says he'll remember your sins no more. Here's the deal. You and I remember our sins all day long. We remember our sins. But he's saying here, I remember your sins no more. If you've placed your faith in Jesus, he is saying, I am not remembering your sins. Now here's what our prayer life looks like. It doesn't really believe this verse. God, will you please forgive me? This is like the hundredth time I did that. God, would you please forgive me? This is a thousandth time. God, would you please forgive me? I can't even count how long it's been. God, I can't believe it. We recount, 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 remember. And Jesus says, when you pray like that, if you were to hear him speaking back to you based on this verse, he'd say this, really? I thought it was the first. I thought it was the first. He'll remember your sins no more. We can, we can stop remembering all these things and start remembering that he loves us. He's made us righteous. He has put his Holy Spirit within us. He is pleased to dwell right here. And he says, you are very good. He'll remember our sins no more because of his promise. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 21 says this, Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was con- reconciling the world to himself in Christ. Okay, that's the ministry of reconciliation. What is that ministry? You, you got to see this. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. He is not counting sins against you. He's not. That's the gospel. In fact, we have the same ministry to go tell people that God's not counting their sins against them if they'll place their faith in Jesus. That's the ministry we have. But you know what? So much of the church lives under shame. And since the church lives under shame, it feels like it's being judged. You know what the church does? It judges. It doesn't give them a ministry of reconciliation. It gives them a ministry of judgment. It tells everybody all the ways that they're not living up. Now, there may be truth to that. And there's a time to tell people you fall short of God's glory, but only if you're telling them there is a way for you to be righteous in God's sight because he died on the cross for your sins and God loves you and you're an image bearer that sin has invaded and God wants to free you from all of that. If we put shame on people, it's because we're living under shame ourselves. Forgiven people forgive. Loved people love. Judged people judge. People who are no longer under shame do not bring shame. They don't bring judgment. And they don't label people by their sins. They see what they could be and begin to speak that into their lives through the power of Jesus. Um, with that, it says this. It goes on. Uh, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors, though God was making his appeal through us. Verse 20. We implore on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So we may become the righteousness of God. Here's how we live our lives. God made us 
Let my hand represent God. God made us in his image to have fellowship and relationship. Sin invades the image bearer. And now all of a sudden it's like, ooh, not, not quite the same. There's a problem here. What are we going to do with this? How, how are you going to fix this? I got this sin issue in my life. How are we going to fix this? And here's what people say. I've already talked about this, but maybe, maybe um, I'll, I'll help an old lady cross the street. I won't cheat on my taxes. Um, I'll stay late and help out my boss. I'll be a great husband and father, um, and, and so on, and whatever thing you think would be good. And what happens is like, okay, it, am I good? Because I co- covered it. And then what we do is we compare stacks and say, gosh, um, this guy here, his stack's so much bigger than mine. I better work harder. Or then we look around and say, uh, man, my stack's higher than Jake's. So I'm, I'm good. But we're all we're doing is comparing, and you never dealt with this at all. So how do you deal with that? Second Corinthians chapter five tells us: Jesus, He who knew no sin, became sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God. See, God didn't come to cover our sin; He came to take it away, remove it as far as the east is from the west, so we can have fellowship again. That's what He did. What he did. Can I have five minutes? Yeah? I'm over. I apologize. But, but with that, I, I want to say this. I, I think God wants to say something else to you, and I just I don't want to miss it. Because I think it will kind of drive it home. Colossians chapter 2 says this. When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was uh, against us, stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. What did Jesus do on the cross? Uh, some places you'll see a cross in a church and it will have um, nothing on it. Other places you'll go to a church and you'll see Jesus on the cross. And I will argue that both uh, pictures of the cross, it's great, it's just incomplete. Or wrong. Well, Jesus isn't on the cross anymore, so, I mean, there's that. But there is something on the cross when Jesus is not on it that's still there. If you look at Colossians, what is it? What's on the cross? The written code. Verse 14. Having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and stood opposed to it, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. See, Jesus wasn't the only thing nailed to the cross. The code was, the law was, the expectations of how you and I are going to live up to uh, the righteous standard of God. That was nailed to the cross. It was canceled. It has no power anymore. None. Zero. So why live by it? It was canceled. Now, verse 15 says this. The other thing that happened with that, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So the other thing he did is he disarmed of the powers and authorities. Powers and authorities in Scripture is the demonic realm. That's what it is. He says he disarmed them. I, I'm assuming at some point you've seen a TV show or a movie with a bomb in the scene where a bomb's going to go off, and you've got to figure out which wire to cut. Is it the green one, the white one, or the red one? And if you cut the right wire, the bomb won't go off. If you hit the wrong one, boom, we're all dead. 
Everybody's seen that scene. That's what's happening at the cross. There's a bomb about to go off in your life. It's called sin. There's a bomb that's about to go off, and Jesus has at that moment, like, I got to cut the right wire. Which one is it? Is it the red one, the white one, or the blue one? Well, he cut the wire, and you know what that wire is? It's condemnation. It's condemnation. It's shame. Because the demonic realm gains power through shame because the demonic realm wants to tell you who you are and doesn't want God telling you who you are. So what he did on the cross is he cut the wire and he cut condemnation. It has no power over you. It's disarmed. Every demonic force in your life is disarmed at the cross through this because it gains power through condemnation and is taken away because he canceled the code that stood opposed to you. Gone. Removed. Now what happens is it might be gone, but you might find this happening in your life. Uh, put to death, therefore, where it belongs to your earthly nature, sexual morality. This is Colossians 3. Impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. But now you must rid yourselves of all such these things. Anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. It goes on. So he tells us in chapter 2 he's disarmed it. And he tells us in chapter 3 um, all these things we should put to death. And you might look at this list, and I'm just quickly just going to say you might find yourself somewhere on that list. And you might say, well, if he disarmed everything, why do I have these things in my life? See this. This is how that section continues. It says, therefore, as God's chosen holy people, holy and dearly love, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. So here's what he said. He disarmed condemnation, has no power over you. He canceled the written code. It's not opposed to you any longer. You are righteous in God's eyes. You, and then we read this thing, and we say in our lives, like, okay, but the problem is I've got greed, I've got lust, I've got anger, I've got rage, I've got lies, I've got this, I've got that. And I'm like, well, that doesn't seem to make sense. Why is this here? Well, then it says, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dear love, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Like, okay, well, I feel like I should have these things, but if I'm honest, I got these things. Or, you know what, I go back and forth between the two. So what does that mean for me? Because we identify ourselves with the things that we do. We identify ourselves with our sin. So we say, I've got greed, I've got lust, I've got anger, I've got rage, I've got fighting, I've got dissensions. I must be this. But lo and behold, that passage has a very important phrase. It's in orange. Please read it. You are holy and dearly loved. All right, you ready? Wardrobe change. See, that's, that's who you are. You are holy and dearly loved. You are holy and dearly loved. This is who you are. Because this is who God made you to be. The problem is, you got two sets of clothes. And what it literally says, okay, so you might look at yourself and say, I've got greed, I've got anger, I've got rage. God doesn't say, well, you're less than. He says, okay, we'll take it off. Be Mr. Rogers. Just take it off. For those of you who are too young to know that, I'm sorry. <laughs> you take it off and then you put on kindness and compassion, gentleness. Just do a wardrobe change. Just take off and put on. Now, here's the deal. Um, we, we have that phrase, the clothes make the man. Well, the clothes make the woman. No, they don't. He does. He says you're holy and dearly loved. I am holy and dearly loved regardless of which clothing I have on. It's who you are. It's who you are. Not because of what you did, 
but because of everything that Jesus did. Everything that he did. You are holy and you are dearly loved. Hebrews says it this way, Jesus is the one who makes men and women holy. I don't make myself holy. He does. And I'm not ashamed to say I'm holy and dearly loved. Now, if I had time, I would have made some t-shirts for you all. Because it's a weird thing to wear a shirt like this. In fact, if you were to wear a shirt like this, could you confidently do it? But the reality is, is that we would rather cover ourselves up. And like, see, I'm kind. I'm compassionate. I'm all these good things. Right? We want to see that. I'm holy and dearly loved. And you may see some things in me that look like Jesus, and praise God for that. But at my base reality, I'm holy. I'm dearly loved. Because he loves me. And if you have any questions about does he love you, he loves you so much that while you and I were sinners, he died on the cross for our sins. It says that God demonstrated his love. That's Romans 5.8. Demonstrate means it gives it action. He is not the God who says, I love you. He is the God who says, I love you and did something about it. So he hung on a cross to pay the penalty for our sin, that we might have the gift of God, which is righteousness and righteousness before him, that we can be justified. And so you can say, God looks at you, holy and dearly loved, just as you'd never sinned. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? See, you and I are good at remembering our sins, but he says, I don't remember your sins anymore, so why are you? God loves you so much that reality says this in 1 Corinthians 13, um, love keeps no record of wrongs. He loves you so much, there's no record of your wrongs. Can you live outside of the weight of shame and live like you're holy and dearly loved? But we're going to celebrate communion together. And I asked for the distinct privilege and honor to lead you through communion, but I want to tell you a couple things about that. I just felt like this just lends itself to communion too well not to do it. Um, in the Old Testament, it says this, the, the, uh, the high priest would get a lamb. And he would get a lamb for the sins of the nation. And he would sacrifice the lamb. When he got the lamb, he had to examine the lamb to make sure that it was perfect and without blemish, to make sure it didn't have any broken bones, to make sure everything about the lamb was perfect. That's what he would do. He would examine the lamb. What does he not do? He does not examine the people. Doesn't examine them at all. <laughs> we already know what we need to sacrifice. He examines the lamb to make sure it's perfect. God is not examining you to make sure you're perfect. God is not examining you to see where all your flaws and sins are. He's examining Jesus. And the one who was perfect died on the cross for you. The Lamb of God is what we're going to celebrate. Now, Jesus also said this. He said this. Do this when you celebrate communion. Do this in remembrance of me. You know what you don't do? Don't do it in remembrance of your sins. And oftentimes in communion... One of the things we tend to sometimes do is we rehearse all our sins. We think getting right before God is how we ought to do to, to partake of this. No, I need to celebrate what Jesus did to make me right before him. So communion is a celebration. And it's the examination and remembrance of Jesus. It's the examination that if you tear this 
the top layer back. It's the examination of his body. Was Jesus perfect? Was Jesus holy? Was Jesus righteous? And it's the examination of him. And so he says, do this in remembrance of me, remembering that his body was broken for you and me, the broken people. You examine him and you examine how much he loves you. You examine how much he died for you. You examine how much that he lived a holy and righteous life. That, that he left the comforts of heaven because he loved you so much and then he had his body broken for you. If you've never placed your faith in Jesus, Jesus says, no matter how broken you think you are, I can make you holy. No matter how unworthy you think you are, I loved you this much that I put myself on a cross to have it, my nails piercing my hands and my feet so my blood could pour down and my body be broken for your sin so you could be in relationship with me. If you have any doubts about whether God wants you, he said he demonstrated his love for, this, for you in this while, he was, while you were still a sinner. He died for you. He didn't wait for you to clean yourself up. Just take a second. and Don't examine yourself. Just recognize you need him. And let that be the end of the examination. And examine Jesus. And here's how that would look. Whether you've done this before or not in communion, would you spend time just thanking him for the body that was broken for you? Thank him that he's made you holy. Would you just thank him right now? And I'll, I'll lead us through a thankfulness prayer in a second. God, we just thank you. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you pursue us. Thank you that you died for us. Thank you that you want to be in relationship with us. And thank you that you are broken so we might be whole. We love you. We praise you. And we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, remember Jesus as we partake of the bread. After supper, he took the cup, and uh, he again said, do this in remembrance of me. But he said this, this is my blood poured out for you. It's a very important thing. I don't know if you, you know this, in the scriptures, um, Cain killed his brother Abel. And when Cain killed his brother Abel, God comes to uh, Cain and says, what have you done? And Abel, uh, Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? Well, God says, as he says, his blood cries out to me. What have you done? See, Abel's blood cried out that there's justice that needs to occur, and it cried out that something was wrong and sin occurred. It spoke to God about that. But the scriptures say that Jesus' blood poured out speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Or, yeah, better word than the blood of Abel. It says, you are forgiven. It says, you are redeemed. It says, you are holy. It says, um, you belong to him. It says that you are dearly loved. It says that you're adopted. It says so much. And as you uh, look at this cup representing the blood of Jesus poured out for you, would you let it speak a better word about you? So with you, I, I want to pray this with you. God, would you help us to understand fully 
what your blood speaks about us. We thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you that you poured it out for us. And we thank you that this blood speaks the word that we are redeemed. We thank you that this word speaks out the word that we are loved, that we are forgiven, that we are adopted and chosen. That's where you're beloved and that you want to be with us and that we can be in right standing with you. Thank you for all that you did for us. And partake of the cup of the Lord that speaks a better word about you. In Jesus' name.